so much. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand together, please. We are going to uh, read the Word of God together. We're in Daniel chapter 9, and uh, appreciate it if you could turn there with me this morning. And while you're turning there, let me just say uh, a couple of things. You know, it was interesting to hear Pastor Tony Handy on the um, on the screen today, say, don't miss a journey through hell. I w- I'd like to miss that, personally. But uh, I do encourage you, we, we do need some help. I want to ask uh, as many of you as possible. I know, it's hard to think, right? You don't want to stand up here as an actor in your, before your congregation as a person who's journeying through hell. I get it. I told Tony, I'll do it, but I don't think that people want to see me in hell. So it's, I know it's a, hard, it's a hard thing, but the whole idea is that we would be able to present this, what has become a very neglected truth. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that there's a hell, but we want to make that presentation. It's beautiful. It's, uh, it's well thought out. It's from Tony's heart. And uh, so, if you can join us and help us out and humble yourself, uh, we, all of us know if you're going to be an actor in this place because you do not want to go to hell. So, thank you for that. Also, I want to just tell you real quickly about Dads in Schools. Our church has been selected out of all the churches in Las Vegas to... To be the first prototype on a campus, they've given us Valley High School, and in just a few weeks, we need 10 dads from our church on that campus. And uh, Daniel, Pastor Daniel and Pastor Mike are going to lead this charge for us. And so I want you to talk to them. Just go to dadsinschools.com. And you have to sign in, and, and you have to get vetted. You have to get a scope taken down at the area command. And then you have to come on uh, July the 19th, if you can. We're going to get trained in, uh, by the FBI. They'll be here at the Impact Center. And uh, so, uh, come on, guys. <clears throat> let's, let's, let's do this thing. Can I just tell you real quick, too, that they just came out with a, I just read this this week, every shooter in our country that's gone to, into a mass shooting, they've done the studies on it, not one of them have a, a real father figure. I'm telling you, friends, fatherlessness you can trace every societal ill back to fatherlessness. And we need, as men of God, to step up, step into our role. Just think, if we could be a... I mean, you can prevent, you, you can save lives. You might be the one that sees that kid over in the corner by himself, that young man, and he, he's, he's oh, going through all this stuff. and You might be the one that becomes his role model and, and saves him from doing something ridiculous like taking people's lives. Amen. 
All right, Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, 17 through 27. If you get tired before I'm done, take a seat. It's okay. Daniel 9, New Living Translation. It was the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede, son of Ahasuerus. Son of a, a Mede. Darius the Mede, son of an older Mede, who became the king of the Babylonians. During the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, learned from reading the word of the Lord as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and I pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. I, I wore rough burlap and sprinkled myself with ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God. And confessed, oh Lord, you are great and awesome, the great and awesome God. You always fulfill your covenant and keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands. But we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. We have refused to listen to your servants, the prophets, who spoke on your authority to our kings and princes and ancestors and to all the people of the land. Verse 17. Oh, our God, hear your servant's prayer. Listen as I plead for your own sake, Lord. Smile again on your desolate sanctuary. Oh, my God. Lean down, incline, and listen to me. Open your eyes and see our despair. See how your city, the city that bears your name, lies in ruins. We make this plea not because we deserve help, but because of your mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Would you say that with me? Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. One more time. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. For your own sake, do not delay. Oh, my God, for your people and your city. Bear your name. I went on praying, confessing my sin, the sin of my people, pleading with the Lord my God for Jerusalem, his holy mountain. As I was praying, Gabriel, the archangel, whom I had seen in the earlier vision, came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. He explained to me, Daniel, I have come here to give you insight and understanding. The moment you began praying, a command was given, and now I am here to tell you what it was, for you are very precious to God. Listen carefully so that you can understand the meaning of your vision. A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish their rebellion, put an end to their sin, atone for their guilt, bring in everlasting righteousness, confirm the prophetic vision, and anoint the most holy place. Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. After this period of 62 sets of seven, listen to this very carefully, prophesied thousands of years ago, the anointed one will be killed appearing to have accomplished nothing. Wow. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy Jerusalem and the temple. The end will come with a flood and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. 
the ruler will make a treaty with the people for one period, a, a period of one set of seven, but after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings and as a climax to all of his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. Wow. Father, help. Help us to understand the times like the sons of Issachar. Help us to understand the scriptures and what our responsibility is today concerning our city and our nation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you're seated. title of the message today is The Third Temple. The Third Temple. Point number one, reality. The reality is, if the Third Temple is ever going to be built, we need some miracles. Honestly. For end-time prophecy to be fulfilled, it's going to require that the Jewish people rebuild the temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. This will be the third temple. Today, Orthodox Jews are preparing already to rebuild the temple. They're preparing an altar to once again resurrect burnt offerings. On that altar of birth uh, of burnt offerings, they're, they're working hard to put it together even now. It's already been built. It's in a secret location. It was designed in such a way that it can easily be disassembled and then reassembled inside the temple. The Orthodox Jews are very eager to see this temple built. However, the most enthusiastic people alive should be you and me. We should want to see that temple built. Followers of Jesus. Because the building of the third temple brings all kinds of incredible possibilities into view for us, including the rapture of the church. Mainly, the fact is that the rebuilt temple will be the very centerpiece of the great tribulation. Now I want to show you a picture of a red heifer. There are some miraculous works that God has been doing to prepare for the rebuilt temple. One miracle is the presence of the red heifer. The ashes of the red heifer are necessary to purify the temple and the priests. The red heifer is a symbol of purity. In order for it to, to qualify to cleanse the temple, it could never have been placed under a yoke. Its hair must be purely red. If there are two black hairs or two white hairs anywhere on this cow, it's not pure. And it can't be used to purify the temple. And it also must have been born in Israel and be at least two years and one day old. Now how do we know that? Numbers 19 is where you read about that. Now, Another thing you need to know about this is that the red heifer foreshadows Jesus in that this animal was completely unblemished and it was sacrificed outside of the camp. 
The ashes of this animal were used to cleanse the people from the contamination of death just the same way that Jesus has cleansed all of us from the corruption of death. He was sacrificed outside of the camp. He was unblemished as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The ashes of this animal will be used to cleanse the temple. The ashes of a red heifer. And there hasn't been one around until recently. From the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD all the way until 2014, nearly 2,000 years, no red heifers born anywhere in the entire world. And then in 2014, a red heifer was born And as it approached its second birthday, guess what? It grew three white hairs. And so it was unable to be used. Currently, we know of two red heifers in Israel. They're being held at a secret location, but they also have a couple of white hairs. And you know what the Orthodox Jews are praying? They're praying and hoping that those white hairs will turn red before that cow turns two years old. So it can be used in the third temple. Now that's a miracle that that needs to happen, that God is preparing for Israel. And it will happen. God will pull this off. He's already showing himself to be the God of miracles by having a red heifer appear after all this time. And so God's preparing Israel for the return of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now the second miracle is the presence of the color Tehelet. I love saying that. Tehelet. It's a very special color of blue used in the garments of the priests who will be serving in the third temple. Priests can't serve in the temple without their clothes having this color of blue. It comes from a specific snail in the Mediterranean. This smell, this snail is, is, this smell, this snail is extremely rare and no one has seen this snail for over 1,300 years, but I want to show you a picture of it. It's an Israeli murex trunculus snail and I'm also showing you a prayer shawl with this color of blue and also the Israeli flag they've tried to mimic that that blue color and uh, suddenly guess what just reappeared in the Mediterranean guess what the Jewish people are right now using to prepare the clothes of the priests it's happening right now in Israel now I want to tell you something about this snail to Israelis It's so precious, it's so important because this snail represents the frailty of man in its creatureliness, but it also represents the heavens because it it exudes this deep blue color. And they so they put those two things together and they don't even know it. They're talking about Jesus. The God-man, the man who came in our frailty, who came from 
the blue heavens. Oh, it's just powerful, friends. Listen to this. The Talmud states that this snail only will appear every 70 years. Now, I'm going to point out to you in just a few moments how important 70 years are. Okay? It's the period of God's judgment in all of its fullness. And it designates the period when God again shows mercy and favor to Israel when they repent. For Orthodox Jews, they combine the lack of a temple, the disappearance of the red heifer, and the disappearance of the snail to make tekelet with their belief that they have not sufficiently repented and that they're not spiritually ready for a third temple to be built. Now let me tell you about the greatest miracle that needs to happen. And we need to pray that this happens. The Israelis are not in charge. They're in charge of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is... is sectioned off three sections, the Muslim group, the Christian group, and um, another group. But the, uh, the Muslims have controlled the Temple Mount for the last 500 years. 500 years ago, they built that building. Those of us who have been there, you, that building is so rickety, a one-point earthquake will crumble it to the ground. So that's going to happen. But I don't know when. I don't know exactly how. Could be an earthquake. I don't know how the Israelis are going to take it back over. But I believe in the God of miracles. Don't you? Let me tell you about a miracle that happened just recently. I, I get all this correspondence because you and I support a work that's helping Muslim people who are coming to Christ by the hundreds of thousands. There is a move of God happening in the Muslim world. And they're coming to know Jesus, and he's still appearing to them in dreams. And here's what happened. There were two young ladies in Baghdad, 15 years old, both of them. They were walking home when ISIS pulled up and kidnapped them, made them sex slaves. They went from captor to captor until finally one of the girls it just took her life away. I mean, she, she died. She could not handle that lifestyle. The other young lady was just about dead from all the abuse that was happening in her life. And so the ISIS radical Islamists decided, okay, we've, they found out her dad was an engineer and her mom was a doctor so they knew these people had money so they decided to ransom her back to her family which happened so she came back to her family she's now 19 years old she was in that abusive situation for four years lost her best friend in that process can you just imagine she goes back home she's the fifth of eight children and she is so overwhelmed by this trauma she can't even talk. 
So the dad and the mom think they've got to do something. They've got to get her out of there. They, so, so they end up moving to Europe. In Europe, they go to a place, a church, and they watch the Jesus film. And Jesus, as he's healing people, this young lady, for the first time, she couldn't even talk for those years after her abuse. And with her family, she was withdrawn. She looked down. She couldn't look up. She couldn't, she couldn't look at people. She was just in this shell. She was barely alive. And she looked at Jesus in that film. And she stood up and said, he's calling me. Jesus is calling me. And she right now is in the ministry helping other Muslim people come to know Jesus. Hallelujah. Our God is a miracle worker. He can heal you. He can help you in whatever you've faced. And I know some of you have faced some awful abuse and difficult times. Let Jesus heal you as you see his arms open wide, the, the nail prints in his hands, and he just calls you to himself today. Answer that call and let him heal your heart. Daniel is having a, an incredible year in this chapter. It's uh, 538 B.C. In fact, write that uh, right beside, right in the the margin of your Bible at verse 1, Daniel 9.1, this is 538 B.C. We know that because we know the years that the, the kings were reigning. And so this year begins with him um, having the revelation about Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar has died. Belshazzar, has, uh, his, probably his grandson, is ruling and... Um, he, the night Belshazzar dies is the night, the, the next morning is the first day of Darius, the Mede, being the king. Now, shortly after this, we know about in Daniel chapter 6, there was an overnight stay in what the original Hebrew calls Daniel's den, because Daniel conquered, so it's no longer the lion's den, it's Daniel's den. And so that happens right about this time that we're studying, the scriptures that we're studying. And then Daniel sees the vision of the four beasts that we studied in chapter 7, where he saw the reign of the Ancient of Days and the coming of the Son of Man with the clouds of glory. Verse 2, I want to take you there. It says, During the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, learned from the reading of the word of the Lord as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. The period of captivity, the official date of the beginning was 606 B.C. And then it ended in 536 B.C., 70 years. This is after Darius dies and Cyrus had become the sole ruler of Babylon. So in chapter 9, what we're studying today, 
we are now within two years of the end of the 70 years of captivity. Now, just a quick word about aging. Daniel's greatest years were when he was in his 80s. I'm so thankful for that. Talk about finishing strong. And hey, I want some of you retired folks out there to call this week and set up appointments with our pastors in whatever area you have expertise in, and let's all get in here and roll up our sleeves and let's finish strong. Let's do things for the kingdom of God. Let's be the people of God. Let's tap into all that wisdom and experience, and, and let's be the ones that train this younger generation. The 70 years symbolize the amount of time the Jewish people are being disciplined for their idolatry and their lack of obedience to Yahweh. Now, the key word to describe this judgment is desolation. Desolation. It's not only a key word in this passage, but it's also the key word in Jeremiah 25, 11, which says, this entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. That's what Daniel read. Jerusalem and the temple have now been desolate for nearly 70 years. Desolation means more than just empty. This word describes the spiritual state of being abandoned by God. It's the abandonment of Jerusalem and the temple by both man and God. Seventy years of judgment. They're literal years. And that's why we believe today that the 70 sets of seven are also literal years. I love this. Daniel, who read Whatever holy scriptures that were available to him at the time, he read it every day of his life in his prayer time. He's now in his 80s. Even though he didn't know it at the time, he was both reading and writing the holy scripture. When he read Jeremiah's prophecy, and then when he wrote his own words respectively, he's in his 80s when he makes this great discovery that he had never seen before in the book of Jeremiah. Friends, I'm telling you, I don't care how many times you read this book, you're going to make new discoveries every time you read it. <laughs> Ask the Lord before you even open it, Lord, show me something new. Surprise me today. Give me a word for me to live by today. Friends, I I'm telling you, let's not take it lightly that we have such incredible access to the Word of God. Way more than Daniel had. But we take it for granted. The Bible just kind of sits around. How many do you have? Pick it up and read it. And remember, you're never too old to learn. Point number two today, repentance. Repentance. This is the name of the game. The Holy Spirit is definitely leading Daniel as he prays a prayer of confession and repentance. Daniel's prayer begins with him falling on his face in humility before God, and he prays with fasting, sackcloth, dust, ashes. Friends, did you know we pray, we fast, and we pray in this church 
every fourth Saturday. Please come and join us. It's so easy. We pray for about five and a half hours. We only miss one meal, so you won't die. There's no sackcloth, dust or ashes involved. Okay, maybe a little dust. But Daniel was in humiliation and mourning for his own sins and the sins of Israel. Daniel begins by praising Yahweh for his greatness, his majesty, his holiness, his glory. And he's praying that God will instill the fear of the Lord in people so that they'll believe in him, that he'll be merciful to them and gracious to those who love him. In verse 5, Daniel uses five different words for sin and rebellion to express the charges against Israel for which he is repenting. I want to read this to you out of the original Hebrew as translated by our very own Larry Wilson. We have sinned and we have done iniquity and we have done evil and we have rebelled and we have turned aside. He goes on to add the charge. Next verse, we have not heard your prophets. In verse 9, he says, we have not heard the voice of Yahweh our God because we haven't gone to the Torah. We haven't been reading the word that's available to us. Daniel includes himself among the people of Israel in their sins, yet Gabriel tells him that he is God's beloved. He is God's precious one in heaven. We read that in verse 23. Now Daniel begins with the most common and general word for sin, and then he proceeds to become more specific about how Israel has sinned with each new word in this scripture in verse 5. And the Holy Spirit is directing his thoughts and prayers to become more and more specific in how he and Israel have sinned. Now, point number three today. I'm trying to give you reality. I want us all to live in a perpetual state of repentance, but friends, we also need to recover because of the world that we live in. We live in a world that has deception everywhere. And it's easy, even for believers, be careful not to fall into the deception. That's the biggest one that, that I see happening is sexual sin. And, and believers, young people, that just think, no big deal. I'm telling you, God set it up the way he set it up because you're going to be in so much pain, so much emotional pain, when you start having sex outside of your marriage bonds. So please, 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 let's, let's be a people who, who recover. We, we do the next right thing. See, this lines up really well with what I was encouraging you to do last week. Go home, make a list of all the people you've hurt. Okay? Especially those of us who battle addictions like alcohol and drugs and gambling and lust and rage and violence and, and, and all the myriad of addictions that are out there. What about the Christian addictions? Cleaning. <laughs> Wish I had that one. My mom could not go to bed until she had cleaned the whole house. I can't tell you how many times I saw her cleaning 
the whole house in her high heel shoes and her dress. But that was where she went to numb her pain. Great woman, great lady of God. Came from an alcoholic home. And that's, that's the way she handled it. Um, some people, some Christian people do it through eating. Some do it through narcissism. Some do it through work. I have a buddy of mine, he's a pastor. He cannot leave his office until all his pencils are lined up. All of his desk is neat. Oh, I wish he'd come and train some of the people that work here. Uh, sorry. Sometimes, you know, I just stop preaching and I start meddling. Anyway, search your heart. And as the Holy Spirit leads you, you're going to find that you can become very specific about whom you have hurt and how you have hurt them. Now, this process, you can't just complete this in one week. It takes a while, maybe even months, to take an honest look at who you've hurt and how you've hurt them. But after you've gone a significant way along this recovery process, it's time to take the next step. Go to the people you've hurt and make amends, regardless of the personal cost to yourself. Now, when you do make this amends, there is one very special caveat, okay? I put it on the board for you today. You seek to ask forgiveness and make amends unless doing so will bring further and greater harm to the person that you have hurt. This step cannot and should not be rushed. It will be a difficult step to be emotionally available to the people you've hurt unless you are growing and getting healthier yourself. So it's important to make sure the timing's right, pray hard, and then go to the person that you need to make amends to. If they're still struggling in their own personal crisis, uh, it's better to just support them and wait until a better time to ask for that forgiveness and to make that amends. But this is a delicate issue because it's going to be tempting to keep saying well, you know what? The time just isn't right. It's not time. Time isn't right. Okay? Vulnerability takes great courage. Refuse to procrastinate on making amends with others. When you're thinking about making amends, consider that there are four types of people with whom you might make this amends. Those to whom you can make full amends. Pray that happens. Those Perhaps you can only make a partial amends. Those that you can't make amends at all. You shouldn't even be in contact with them because some kind of abuse took place in the relationship. And then fourthly, those who've died and you can no longer contact them. I encourage you to write a letter to them. Talk to God. Somehow you've got to get that out. Don't hold on to that. It's going to hurt you. It's going to be like acid. It's going to just eat away at you inside. So... As you feel healthy enough and confident enough to start making amends, do it with sensitivity, do it with clarity, and do it in the appropriate time. Let the Holy Spirit lead and guide you when you make amends. Now, I'm going to humble myself today, and I want to make amends this morning 
to all of you, my, my wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ, who are fortunate enough to have more pigmentation in your skin than the rest of us. Okay? We just celebrated our country's freedom last week. We're free from the tyranny of the King of England. And you wonderful folks, my black brothers and sisters, what I've discovered is you don't really get to celebrate the way we celebrate. Because of the fall of man. Because of our depravity. Because of our sinfulness. Because of our inability to live by the golden rule. Your ancestors in this country were not treated with the truths that were self-evident, that all men are created equal. And we need to be honest about this. I want to show you three pictures from Montgomery, Alabama, where I go to a, a conference every year. And I've been to all of the museums. And it, it, you need to do this, friends. You need to understand that 160 years ago, slaves were freed in this country but I am old enough to remember Jim Crow laws in the South back in the 1960s. Because I was raised in Dallas, Texas. I visited the museum in Alabama commemorating the lynching of thousands of our young black men. Sometimes just because they happened to look at a white girl. Atrocities still abound for the black man or woman who have to work harder than anyone else at their place of employment to prove themselves simply because they have more pigmentation in their skin. And I've heard your stories, some of you. Uh, one of our ladies here told me, Pastor, I have to be a rock star at work just to be counted equal with everybody else. T.D. Jakes, the pastor of one of our great churches in this country, never met his grandfather for whom he was named. His grandfather's name was T.D. Jakes. His grandmother, thank God, was already pregnant with his dad on the night that several white men came and approached Grandpa T.D. Jakes in his backyard. They rolled him up in barbed wire and they drowned him in a pond simply because he had more pigmentation in his skin. The son of Bishop T.D. Jakes called him one night recently asking his dad to pray for him because it was around midnight and he'd just been pulled over by the police in Texas. T.D. Jakes, I heard him, I saw him, I heard the interview. Three times in the interview he says, I was scared to death for my son's safety. I was scared to death. Now, friends, I know this is a difficult subject, but I would like for us as a church body today, like Daniel, to repent for the sins of our nation, including the systematic racism that needs to be eradicated from our country today. Now, come on, friends. Those of us who are pigmentationally challenged, <laughs> we need to travel to Montgomery, Alabama, Selma, Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama. We need to educate ourselves about what our brothers and sisters have been through and they're still going through. I just want to stop and pray right now. I'm not finished. I'm almost finished. I'm going to my last point. But please bow your heads and close your eyes.
Father, we got issues in this nation still to this day. Oh, God, forgive us for our insensitivity, for our white privilege, for thinking that our black brothers and sisters ought to just get over themselves. It's been different for them, and it shouldn't be. Please forgive us, Lord. And help us to learn, and help us to grow, and help us to be humble, and help us to ask questions, Lord. We're, we're a church, I like to call us Chocolate Ripple. We're, we're black and we're white. We're, we're, we're red, yellow, black, brown, and white. All precious in your sight. But Lord, help us. Help us to walk together. And, and the most healthy black people in my life say, please don't treat me any differently than anyone else. Just try and understand how hard it has been for us. And treat us the way you want to be treated. Help us to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now. Point number four today, and we're going to really get into some heavy stuff here, and I hope you can just stay with me for this. It, it is so important. If you can grasp this, it'll make such a difference how you live the rest of your life. See, Daniel being guided by the Holy Spirit today, a lot of this chapter, and I even skipped some of it because he's, he's deep in prayer about the sins and transgressions that his nation had made. What an excellent role model to follow in intercessory prayer. He humbles himself with prayer and fasting. He, he, he praises God for being so full of holiness and mercy and wisdom and knowledge. He, he confesses his sins and the sins of Israel in detail. He identifies the different ways in which the people have failed to obey the Lord. And then he comes asking for forgiveness and mercy and grace and favor for God to restore the people of Israel. And praise God, it's going to happen just two years from this prayer that they get to go back to Jerusalem. But very emphatically in verse number 18, he says, Oh God, oh my God, lean down. The word in the original is incline. And listen to me, open your eyes and see our despair. See how your city, the city that bears your name, lies in ruins. And we make this plea not because we deserve your help, but because of your mercy. It's so emphatic when, when Daniel said, lean down, incline, when he said, open. You know what he was doing? He was giving God a command. Not really. I mean, it's written like a command, but it's basically just a bold statement of faith because he knew that God is a God who wants to forgive. He wants to heal us. He wants to hear us today. He wants to see us. As Daniel continues praying, he's interrupted by the archangel Gabriel. If that ever happens to you, please let me know. Gabriel gives him revelation of the 70 sets of seven, which reveal significant details about Jesus from Daniel's time 
down to the last days. Okay, so follow this with me. Verses 24 through 27 have been the object of so many studies. There's so many things written about it in commentaries and teachings. God decreed that there would be 70 sets of seven until the final completion of the work of God from the completing of the transgression to the anointing in the Holy of Holies when the third temple is rebuilt. The word translated sevens can either mean the number seven or it usually stands for the word weeks. But for us to have understanding today, it's actually representing years. The number seven is important because it's referring to 70 cycles of sabbatical years. The first one, seven times seven equals? 62 times seven. The second one equals? Are you awake? I put it on the screen for you. What do you get your calculator out? It's right there. 62 times 7 is? Thank you. And so you add those two numbers together, 49 and 434, and that makes? Oh, thank you. Thank you for humoring me. The 70 sets of 7 are broken into three divisions, okay? Seven sets of seven, the first one, 49 years. Do you know why it's written that way? Because God wants the people of Israel to celebrate a jubilee, okay? So, so stay with me. It's difficult to understand this prophecy. There were four decrees that were made. One was by... Cyrus, one was by Darius, two by Artaxerxes, okay? Uh, different scholars, Bible scholars, picked different decrees in order to start the 483 years. But I did a very deep dive this week in research. So did Larry, my research consultant. And we came to the agreement that the first decree of Artaxerxes Written about in Ezra, chapter 7, verse 7, in the seventh year of his reign. Isn't that cool? Ezra 7, 7, seventh reign, 7 times 7. Okay, never mind. So, that was the decree that started the clock ticking for 483 years. The year of that decree was the year 458. 458 years before Jesus Christ came. Okay? Now, Cyrus, back in 538 B.C., he made a decree, but when you read it, his decree was simply to go back to Jerusalem to allow the people to return, but he didn't make a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Verse 25 of our text today is very specific that not only does the temple need, the second temple needs to be built, and the city of Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt all the way down to the streets and the strong defenses, okay? Uh, the trench, it could be uh, translated as a moat, like they built this, they were trying to protect Jerusalem, and it, 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 its walls were broken down, there was no protection whatsoever. 
But the scriptures are very clear that they were to go back, rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. Who did that? Nehemiah. Ezra was the the priest. Ezra and his group of people left the captivity in Babylon. They arrived in Jerusalem in 458, and then Nehemiah arrives in 444. Okay, about 13, 14 years later. Now, the best of my ability to read and make sense of the math, what I am able to discern this week was from a man named Humphrey Prideau, a 17th century theologian, from the decree in 458 until 409 B.C. That's a 49-year period. So the true celebration of the rebuilt temple in the city of Jerusalem wasn't really official until the year of Jubilee, 409, even though all indications in the Scripture, when you read Nehemiah and Ezra, are that the job was finished quickly in 444. Nehemiah, I'm going to show you a picture of his wall that they discovered over here. Look at how awful that wall is. Well, you'd build an awful wall too if you built it with a a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. It was about speed. They built the rebuilt the walls, and this was about the size of Jerusalem at that time. That's the city of Jerusalem. They rebuilt those walls in 52 days. Okay? And then they rebuilt the streets and they did everything within that year. They were diligent. Nehemiah, he he made it happen. God bless him. But the people of God celebrated the rebuilding of Jerusalem in 444. What is that? That's like what? 30, 40, that's 34 or 35 years later is when God told them to celebrate. Why? Why was the actual celebration God ordained on New Year's Day, Rosh Hashanah, in 409 B.C.? Here's why. This is important, friends. Listen to me very carefully. The command to restore and rebuild is not merely a physical building project, but it's also about the spiritual restoration of the nation. And the spiritual restoration takes time, and it could not be completed until the year of Jubilee was celebrated. The spiritual restoration and the revival of Israel was exactly what Daniel was praying for in his prayer of repentance. It's exactly what you and I have been praying for now over the last decade. So the first phase of the 70 weeks is the spiritual and physical rebuild of Israel. And this is why the Orthodox Jews of today are praying and repenting so that they will be found worthy to build the third temple. Now we don't seek through our own righteousness to become worthy of God's work in his world. Our worthiness comes from and is given to us simply because we decided to have a relationship with Jesus. We decided, I'm going to be faithful to Jesus Christ. But how much more healing, how much more forgiveness, how much more revelation, how much more mercy, 
could we bring to the church and to our angry, divided country if we would be faithful in interceding for the church and for our nation? Did I mention we have fasting and prayer around here every fourth Saturday? Oh, yeah, I did say that. Moving on. The second phase of the completion of the work of salvation through Christ and the fullness of the kingdom of God to be established includes that first set of seven times seven, 49 years, an additional 62 times seven, 434 more years, which equals 483 years. And you know where that gets you to? Depending on which calendar you use, if you use a regular 365-day calendar, it'll get you right to the baptism of Jesus. Right to the beginning of his ministry, 27 A.D. But if you go by a 360-day calendar, which was used back then, we don't know which calendar Gabriel was using when he spoke to Daniel, but if you use the 360-day calendar, then it will get you right down to the day of the triumphal entry and the, that week, the fulfillment of the prophecy given in verse number 27, excuse me, verse number 26, that says in the King James Version, the Messiah will be cut off. Now, the crucial work of the second phase, this second 483 of the 483, this second phase, 62 times 7, the crucial work comes to completion in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is fascinating stuff. Stay with me. You people that hate math, I'll slap you right now. You listen to me. 7 times 7, 49. 62 times 7, 434. Put those two numbers together, 483. From the decree of Artaxerxes in Ezra 7, 7, 483 years exactly later, Jesus Christ is crucified on a cross. Prophesied thousands of years before it happened in this book. Tell me this isn't the word of the living God. Man, our master's death on the cross gives us cleansing from sin. When we put our faith in him, when we believe in Jesus, his righteousness is applied to us. His death, burial, and resurrection provides great spiritual blessing. But friends, there's one more seven to go, okay, to give us the 70 sets of seven to bring completion to the work of salvation by Jesus Christ. And I want to show it to you on a chart right now, and we'll finish with this. I'm just going to explain this chart to you, best of my ability. So there's the first 69 weeks right there on this side. The first seven, year, seven weeks of years, 49 years, okay, Daniel 9.25, which we read. So they came in and rebuilt Jerusalem. And then 62, 434 years, 62 weeks of seven years, and the Messiah, the Prince, is cut off, and Jerusalem is trampled again, and the second temple is destroyed. Did you see that? It was written right here, 
in the scriptures we read that, so the, there's three times the word rulers used, depending on which translation. The first time it talks about a ruler, it's Jesus. The second time, in verse 26, it's Titus in A.D. 70 who came in and destroyed Jerusalem. A.D. 70. Jesus actually prophesied that that's what was going to happen in, um, what's the scripture? He prophesied this in Luke 21, verse 6. Not one stone of that magnificent structure would be left on top of the other. And then the third ruler in verse 27 is the Antichrist, okay? But here's what we all need to understand. Daniel could only see 69 weeks. What he didn't see is what was given to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul says, God himself revealed this, his mysterious plan to me. God did not reveal it to previous generations, didn't reveal it to Daniel, but now by his Spirit, he has revealed it to his holy prophets and apostles. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children, both Jews and Gentiles belong to Jesus Christ. That's what Daniel didn't see. He didn't see the, the present church aids. He didn't see the mystery in Ephesians 3. It's a prophetic gap. And God is doing this to give all people all over the world a chance to open their hearts and lives to him. Why hasn't he returned yet? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But there's going to come a last week right there. That's the great tribulation. When's the rapture going to happen? <laughs> I don't know, and neither do you. Our church teaches and believes it'll happen at the beginning, okay, before the tribulation. Uh, a lot of you here have told me we've had this conversation. Many of you believe in the mid tribulation period, which I have trouble with personally, because I think this verse right here says, verse 27, the ruler's going to make a treaty with the people for what? For seven years. So don't you think it makes sense that when the Antichrist signs a covenant with the Jewish people, that the tribulation period starts that day, the day he signs the covenant? It makes all kinds of sense to me. So then you would know exactly when three and a half years later is. So I don't know what. It's going to be just one of those days near the middle? Okay, I'll give you that. Because nobody knows the day nor the hour. And then those of you guys who are post-trib, you're, you're the hardcore. You, you know, and, and believe me, some of the greatest Bible scholars I know are post-trib. But I can't buy it. Not, not because we shouldn't suffer. I can't buy it because we'll know the day that the tribulation period starts, according to Daniel 9.27, the day that the Antichrist signs a seven-year treaty with Israel. I don't know. I might be stupid. That may not be right. 
I'm not sure. That's what makes sense to me. And I got a hundred other reasons why I'm pre-trib. You want to hear them? <laughs> Let's all stand together. We're done. Lord, thank you for revealing the future to Daniel. Because it lets all of us know today that we serve a God who sees the end from the beginning. Nothing takes you by surprise. You already see it. You already know the ending. And it's awesome for us because we're like sheep. We get all worried. We get all frustrated. We're down in the trenches. We're living life. Stuff happens, things go wrong, things go bad. We don't know if we're going to make it. Take a deep breath today, child of God. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. And I would say you're going to make it to the end, but for us, there's no ending. Hallelujah. I want to finish with this one thing. Would you just humor me? wouldn't believe how much I'm skipping in my notes, but our time is gone. But I want to finish with this today. Daniel prayed and interceded for himself, for the sins of his people, his nation. And I want to finish this service today with as many of us that are capable to turn around right there at your seat or just kneel, kneel down right there or come forward to this altar. Could we have prayer right now for the sins of our nation? Could we ask forgiveness for all the innocent blood we've shed? 70 million unborn babies. Could we ask forgiveness for the way we've treated people whose skin is a different color than ours? Can we have, ask forgiveness for our prejudices, our political prejudices? Oh God, forgive us. Oh God, cleanse us. Oh, God, we humble ourselves right now. Let's all bow on our knees right now. If, you, if you're physically capable, if not, please just be seated. God, forgive us. We're a sinful people. We live in a world now where adultery is just common. Our young people, they don't get married anymore. They just move in together. Christian young people, and they think it's okay. And it's not. Abortion is, is such a big industry because of sexual promiscuity. We live in uh, the, the, the aftermath of the sexual revolution. We have fallen so short of the glory of God. We have sinned against you. 
Please forgive us. Pornography is rampant in our nation. Please forgive us. Lord innocent blood of little babies is screaming from the streets today God I just I pray for the people out there who are hell bent on, on destruction and, and they want to kill our, our Supreme Court justices and they threaten them everywhere they go and it's just it shouldn't be like that Why would people, I don't get it, I don't get it, I mean I do, I, I, I understand that there's deception out there, it's, it's like so many are saying now that the, we've gone backwards a hundred years on women's rights, I just think about those 40 million women that never got to live were aborted what about their rights I don't get it I don't I just I don't understand our, our thinking in this nation oh God please please help us I, I, I do understand that there's a, a large group of people in our nation that think now that what they say women's rights have been taken that civil rights is next. I just don't see it. That's not it. We are a nation being judged by God right now. We humble ourselves before you. Please forgive us. Mike, if, if you guys are watching over there in Kids Church, would you bring all the children in, please? We just want to finish with all of our families together here. Oh, God. Forgive us. Forgive us. Innocent blood right behind our back parking lot. Probably over 50, 60,000 babies. Thank you. 
Jesus be the center of it all. Jesus be the center of it all. From the beginning to the end, it will always be, it's always been you, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus be the center of it all. From the beginning to be it's always been you Jesus Jesus nothing else matters nothing in this world will do Jesus you're the center of their clientele are, are Christian young ladies who got pregnant and, and now they're so ashamed and they don't know what to do. 
they're trying to hide it from their families. And it's just an awful thing, Lord. How do we let our beautiful Christian young ladies who get into these situations know that they're valuable, they're precious. Just like Daniel, you said he's precious to you. They're precious to us, but how do we how do we help them through the shame? How do we help them? Let that baby live. How do we walk them through it? And if they're too young, then we'll get that baby adopted into a Christ-believing home. Help us, Lord. We, the body of Christ, Lord, we just... Raise them up in the ways that they should go, Lord, in according to the Bible, according to your word. 
I pray, dear God, right now as their eyes are closed, God, you might even speak to each one of them about the future you have for them. Could be a missionary, could be a pastor, could be a Sunday school teacher. God, and so we just pray for them right now. Pray your, your peace amongst them. Speak to their hearts, Lord. God, you, they are your workmanship created in your Son, Christ Jesus, for doing good works that God has worked out in advance. And so we pray for that. Thank you for that. Show them their talents, God. And may they use it for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Praise God. Thank you, Mike. Love you, kids. Uh, this is not a fake stand-up we're leaving. This is the real one. Please stand. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish with something funny. I gotta tell you this. Happened yesterday. I got the privilege to meet Jay Schroeder. You know who he is? Quarterback for the Washington Redskins that won the Super Bowl in 1988. He was wearing his ring. I'm wearing my ring from the World Series of the minor league team I was on. We won our whole World Series. Okay. His was bigger than mine. I told him in front of God and everybody, I hate the Washington Redskins. I hate them with a passion. I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas. I'm a cowboy fan. All right? Sorry. I know you either love that or hate that. There's no in-between. Anyway, my second favorite team in the NFL is any team playing the Washington Redskins. I'll root for them every time. That's how bad I hate them. I told Jay, 1988, your year as the Super Bowl winning quarterback was the worst year of my life because the Redskins won the Super Bowl. The next year, 1989, the Cowboys went 1-15. First year of Troy Aikman. But we beat the Redskins. It was a good year. And a few years later, we won two games and we beat them both times. And they won the Super Bowl again that year, but I don't care. We beat them twice. It was a good year. But I got to throw my arms around him and tell him, Jay, I just need you to know, only because of Jesus, I love you, man. You're my brother in Jesus. Hallelujah. We are brothers. We are sisters. We belong to God and we belong to each other. Have a great rest of your day and week. I love you. Go home. Go eat. Take your kids with you.